When we're done this morning, if you happen to have any questions about Christ or the Bible or what you heard this morning, I would be happy to do my best to try to answer them for you. So, page 834 in our seat Bibles. If you're new to West Cohasset, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor. And this morning, our interest lies in verses 16 and 17, but we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, uh, one, uh, chapter 3, excuse me, <laughs> chapter 3. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here... There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together and let's pray to our Father in heaven. Our Father, we do bow to you now in genuine humility and absolute dependence, Father. We would ask that you would look upon your people this morning with compassion and power in order that we would be able to fix our gaze on you and you alone. To those in despair this morning, awaken them that you you are reality, that you are their rock and shield and fortress. You are their mighty God who saves. Remind them, Father, that every morning your mercies are new and that there is no one like you to help the powerless against the enemies of the cross. To those sick in body, sorrowful in mind or fearful this morning in heart. Answer them with comforting words that is perfect to their distress. Say to them, God, cheer up. Have confidence. Everything will be well because you are God and you are rich in mercy and delight to see your children and delight to give them good gifts. And to those of us who have said yes to sin and no to you far too many times and just just the normal routines of a given week. 
We are sorry. We do ask for forgiveness. And we thank you that only in Jesus we may find this forgiveness and find it fully and completely. And therefore, Father, it becomes very precious to us because we know that this is a gift won for us by the death of your Son who loved us and gave himself up for us. So they could be lost here. We pray that you would save them. There, there is loss represented here, Father. We pray that you would save them. There is loss everywhere in the world, Father. We pray that you would do what only you can do by your mighty power as your gospel is preached or proclaimed or, or sung. Give to your son the nations. And then, God, work in this church body the grace to fall more and more under the precepts of the Scripture. For we can't do, Father, anything as we should do without your help. So it is in Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask all these things and we ask for your help this morning now. Amen. On the north wall in our bedroom, to the left of the bed, there is an embroidered wall hanging. What it is, essentially, is a piece of cloth with needlepoint stitching molded to a piece of foam. The, the cloth, I think, has a, a nice rustic value to it. The stitching is, is black, thick thread. The, the black, thick thread form letters, and the letters create these words. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17. And it's the last line, which just about every time I read it amazes me because it's quite an amazing thought. Is it not the Lord our God rejoicing over His people in song? It's an amazing thought, but it's also quite a happy thought. One, that, that God sings. And two, that he would choose to sing over us with joy, but in a more personal light, when I walk into my bedroom, that he would choose to sing over me with joy. Many happy mothers sing happily and sweetly over their own children, right? It's a lovely thought. Perhaps they sing this. Baby, mine, don't you cry. Baby, mine, dry your eyes. Rest your head close to my heart, never to part, baby of mine, little one when you play. Don't you mind what they say? Let those eyes sparkle and shine, never a tear, baby of mine. Many, many happy mothers sing over their children, delighting in them. And perhaps many happy fathers do as well. When we're the best of friends, Having so much fun together. You're not even aware. You're such a funny pair. You're the best of friends. I wonder if anybody knows this song. Life's a happy game. You, you could clown around forever. Neither one of you see your natural boundaries. Life's one good, happy game. So you have mothers singing to their children. Fathers singing to their children. And, and occasionally a few wives sing to their husbands, right? I hope they don't sing, hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. Wives sing to their husbands, and a few husbands sing to their wives. And, and on each occasion, when it actually takes place, it can be a, I think it can be a quite a happy, loving, heartfelt moment, right? She's got a way about her. 
I don't know what it is, but I know that I can't live without her. She's got a way of pleasing. I don't know what it is, but there doesn't have to be a reason anyway. She comes to me when I'm feeling down, inspires me without a sound. She touches me, and I get turned around. Now, you think with me for a moment. If those things be lovely and true in human relationships... To me, then, it is a happy thought that God would choose to rejoice over his people, that God would choose to rejoice over me with with some kind of happy song. So it's an amazing thought, it's a happy thought, but it also, to me, is, it is, well, for sure, quite an assuring thought. Because if you think about it, most of us, if we're going to sing, will mostly sing when we are happy. Isn't that what the song says? I sing because I'm happy, I sing because I'm free, Right? And much of the time, we do sing when we're happy and, and when things are going reasonably well. So, for example, when the parents shoot through the door at home in the evening hour and they have a bit of a song in their heart and it's coming out of their mouth, hitting only about one out of every seventh note, doesn't really matter, does it? Because everyone knows when mom and dad are singing, the mom and dad are in good form, right? It's a good day. And because of this, you got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good, good night, so, so you say, ask me whatever it is reasonable, and you'll probably say, sorry about this, be our guest, be our guest, our command is your request, you know, and then you'll be throwing out money to them. Here's money, go, have a terrific time, you, you lovely child of mine. So, so in this, there is a sense of satisfaction that God has in his reign and a sense of satisfaction that God has over his people so that everything is going according to God's plan. Consequently, there is never any sense of ultimate frustration in God, so much so that God can sing. Which, at that point, God singing over us, over me, becomes an assuring thought that the Almighty God is rejoicing over His people, over me, with a song. And so it stands to reason, since we are made in God's image, Singing becomes our wonderful privilege as well because, loved ones, singing is a wonderful gift that God has granted humanity. And depending on what we are singing, it may often describe the state of our hearts just as it may often describe the bent of our lives. And it stands to reason that if he sings happily over me and it's just me, then when we gather together in the context of the church, it is most assuredly a wonderful gift of God that we can sing it all. Subsequently, is it any wonder as you think about these things that the vast majority of cults, singing is not foundational at all. Buddhists do not sing. Muslims don't really sing. The the Krishnas chant, but none of it is heartfelt, clear-worded, joyful, grateful grateful singing. It's more of an incantation than an exaltation. I mean, at least in the case of the Krishnas, it's all beat, but it's, it's really no meat at all. And so you say, well, why is that true for them? Well, it's true for them because they have nothing worth singing about. I mean, who wants to sing about nirvana? Do you really want to take time to sing about nirvana, the the destination of the Buddhists? Who wants to sing in a happy voice about a God who judges people with scales, whether their good deeds are far outweigh their bad deeds, as in Islam? I mean, especially if I was a woman, I would moan and not sing in that context. But, But why is singing to be true, then, for the Christian? Why can we sing, praise my soul, the, the, the king of heaven, to thy throne, thy tribute 
bring. Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. Evermore God's praises sing. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Evermore God's praises sing. Why can we sing that way? Well, we can sing that way because, one, we have something worth singing about. Two, we have someone worth singing to. And three, we have someone we must sing to. In the church of Jesus Christ, then, singing is to be the norm. It is the norm. It is foundational. Not least of all, whenever the people of God gather together as a visible expression, as we are doing right now, as the family of God, to give praise and glory only to God. Because in this, not only are we bound to sing, what we're saying when we sing is that we have something worth singing about and someone worth singing to. So if you think about this, in our union with Christ, we have the peace of Christ. Then, then the obl- obligation to fill our minds, fill our hearts with the words of Christ, with all wisdom. And the overflow, if you would, or one of the effects of this is certain kinds of singing from the people of God all directed to God. It's going to take us to our first point this morning. We have four, three questions to answer. And I apologize that they're not in the back of our worship folder. That was my fault. It didn't, didn't get done in time. But anyway, well, you'll forgive me, but the questions are simple. When we think about worship to Jesus Christ and thinking primarily about singing in worship in, in a worship service or singing in worship to Christ as the body of Christ, we have some questions that we're going to answer. And the first question is very simple, who should sing? Okay, pretty simple, right? In the church of Jesus Christ, who should sing? Well, I hope it's a no-brainer. As you look at the text, verse 16, you should sing. I should sing, everyone should sing, children should sing. The church of Jesus Christ should sing. The the church was born in song. That's Ralph Martin from his book, Worship in the Early Church. So we are a singing people. As our father, we learned, is a singing father. Now if you take that framework and read your Bibles and try to, to, if you would, fill in the blanks, this is what you'll find. You'll find Moses singing to Miriam. And with Miriam, excuse me, I hope he wasn't singing to Miriam. He was singing with Miriam. And all of Israel is singing Exodus 15. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. So you find Moses and Miriam and the people of God singing. Nehemiah chapter 12, all the work is done essentially on the wall. They have trumpets and they have cymbals. And here we go, they're singing praise to God. Our Lord, on the night before his crucifixion, at the end of the Last Supper, Jesus and the twelve were singing a hymn of praise to God. Paul and Silas go from praying to God, then to thanksgiving to God, and then songs of praise to God in a prison cell. And when we have to be, if you think about this, when you have to be kind of juiced up all the time to sing on a Sunday, what we need to do is check our hearts. Ask yourself, is the word of Jesus Christ dwelling in you richly? For lifeless, soulless singing is a sure sign of a routine that is void of reality and therefore void of ultimate reality because dead people do not sing. So you have a question. Christian, do you sing? Do you sing? When the call to worship comes, are you singing? Are you, if you would, into it? Because being into it is an expression of being into him. So, as you think about our modern age, is your digital device put away? Are your thoughts focused all on God? Are you concentrating if it helps you? 
I understand it helps me. I have to concentrate too. Although real love makes it easy to pay attention to the object of our affection, but, but are you singing or are you just watching? Just watching. As it is so very dangerous when public worship increasingly becomes just a spectator event where the, where the visual and the sensory power is, is more important than a verbal event in which we engage in dialogue through prayer, through singing, through the ministry of the Word, and our tri, with our triune God. And I want you to think about this. When a worship service or, or in a worship event is set up so that the visual and the sensory is primary, I want to tell you to be careful. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. Everything they do is done for people to see. Matthew 23. What happens in worship is not really the issue. What is said in worship, that is really the issue. Because when you think about these things and you read church history, you'll discover that there has been, sadly, large portions of it when the church congregations didn't sing at all. All they did was just watch. For example, in the time of the Reformation, when you recognize that before the Reformation, the notion of the, the, the participation of God's people in the celebration of the Mass extended to little more than just the receiving of the sacraments. And indeed, the, the way that they conducted their worship service were such that people could come and go essentially as they pleased just as long as they were there for that required moment, for that big moment of the giving of the sacraments. And while they were there, if they actually chose to choose to show up, they weren't singing. They, they were watching religious professionals who would sing. Point of fact, most especially the poor could not even understand the liturgy as it, much of it was in Latin. So you had singers who were professional singers singing in a language that most of the people couldn't understand. You had the, the, the father or the, or the priest, excuse me, uh, talking and speaking in Latin which most people could not understand. So they couldn't sing. They couldn't understand. Therefore, the whole thing to them might as well have been mumbling. I mean, if you think about it, it was just mumbling. They were there for duty and that was it. No delight, just duty. So the Book of Common Prayer comes along in the 16th century. And it's a reaction. This is the Reformation book. It's a reaction to, to the line of worship. And they write this. Listen to what they write. When the call to worship was to begin, one, it is to begin... And two, it is to begin with a loud, clear voice. So, so here we are in the 21st century, and we might think that's strange. Why did they point out that when the call to worship was to begin, it was to begin, and they were to speak with a loud, clear voice? Well, the reason that it was done was in order to distinguish their worship from that which had marked the dark ages of the church, namely a mysterious mumbling that could be barely heard. So you had people singing, professional singers, and, and no one understood it. And you had priests preaching or saying things, and no one understood it. Well, you have to ask yourself, well, why is that the case? Because frankly, it really didn't matter what they were singing, and it really didn't matter what he was saying. The whole thing didn't matter as just long as you took the sacrament. So, so the Book of Common Prayer rightly says no, but more importantly, the Bible, the words of Christ says no. Genuine worship calls for the participation of those who attend, and it's aimed then for the edification of those who attend, while the whole body is aiming at the glorification of God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. So point number one, who should sing? 
every Christian, every man, every woman, every child should sing. Okay, point number two then, what do we sing? Well, thank God that we are told what we should sing. Verse 16, there it is. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly so that when you're singing psalms and you're singing hymns and your spiritual songs, you're singing, if you would, Christ-centered songs. So according to the Bible, the words of Christ is underpinning then everything the church of Christ is singing. So when we think about this, we're called to think and say we're going to sing, if you would, with our Bibles wide open. We're not going to sing because we simply like the beat. And we're not going to sing because we simply say that the words speak to me. No, here's the key. Are the words speaking about Jesus? Are they declaring the truth of Jesus? Therefore, the real issue is not ultimately, I, I wonder what they're singing in the cities. Or, you know, I'm going to get on the web and I'm going to see what they're singing over there. I mean, they can help. We understand that. However, the real issue is that in each case, the songs, if they're going to be effective, if they're going to be meaningful, and if they're going to be true, therefore, if they're going to be pleasing to God, the one to whom we sing to, the words then must be consistent with the words of Christ. In other words, it's Christ-centered singing. Let me give you one example. In church history, there's a famous letter that I'm sure some of you know about. It's, it's from Pliny, the governor of Bithynia in 112 A.D. And the letter is describing a church worship service. I think it's the earliest letter that Christians have about what actually took place in a, in a Christian worship service. So the letter was sent to Trajan, who at the time was the emperor of Rome, and he was concerned with Christian worship. There were rumors swirling around of, of cannibalism which was simply a kind of misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. And one of the points that Pliny writes about the Christian worship service was this. They meet at dawn. They meet at dawn to sing a hymn of praise to Christ as God. You catch that last part? To sing a hymn of praise to Christ as God. So, so they met at dawn because they had to, right? Sundays, as we understand Sundays, uh, where most of us are off work, that wasn't the case in, in the first and second century. But moreover, the bigger issue was that they had to meet in secret because of persecution. So as you think about this, every time they met at dawn to worship Christ as God, they knew that it could be the last time they met on earth to worship Christ as God. And how do you think that we would sing to Christ if we knew that it more than likely could be the last time that we sing a hymn of praise to Christ as God? I assure you that, that if we do, we wouldn't fiddle around as much. And I assure you that our concentration would be clean and bright and strong. So they met at dawn because they had to. And they sang a hymn of praise to Christ as God because they were taught to. And it rang true to those dear Christians who held the line. Thank God they held the line in the first century. So, so the Colossian Christians were told, verse 16, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Therefore, by apostolic authority, Paul's our apostle. He's over us in Jesus, if you would. In the worship of Christ, in the songs, then we must do the same. So if you, as you look at these terms, if, if you press them, we'll come up with some decent definitions. I do need to tell you that scholars don't wholeheartedly agree exactly on what they mean. But if you press these terms, you can say that psalms were probably what you think they were, Old Testament writings. 
So, so for the first five or six centuries, essentially, the Psalms were the, the hymn book of the church. And we know this because history teaches this, and we know this because Psalms are primarily pointing to or prefiguring Christ. And so when Psalms were, were saying, listen carefully, they were meant to be accompanied with a full musical ensemble. So it went, it went beyond drums and guitars and, and piano. It was way beyond that. It was every instrument, and, and if you would, an orchestra, was meant to be played when the songs were meant to be sung. Psalms were meant to be sung. Then you have hymns. And hymns were, were sacred songs, which are simply an expression of the truth as it is in Jesus. And I think you should know this, especially those of you who like hymns. The word hymn, Paul actually took out of the pagan, pagan religions of his day, and he took it and he baptized it, and he brought it into Christian worship. So, so we say around here, the song can be a one day old. It could be a thousand years old. Is it biblical? Is it about Jesus Christ? If it is, then we can sing it. And then finally, spiritual songs. And spiritual songs were basically Christ-filled songs with or without music. And to be honest with you, some of the songs were spontaneous. So they weren't like written and sung. They were just happening in the context of the church worship service. And so those are pretty good definitions. If, if you press the terms, those are pretty good definitions. But the significance was that by using these terms, Paul was simply saying that there is to be a variety of musical forms and a breadth of spiritual expression that cannot be represented in one musical form. So, so we all have room for growth, don't we? Because we all have our likes that we like. So, so the strict psalm-only view, which is believe it or not, gaining popularity in some Reformed churches where they say, we're only going to sing the Psalms. That will not do. Or the simple praise chorus you know, that, that demands you know, very little thought and a whole lot of stamina. They will not do. Or hymns only will not do. Or the high-powered, feet-stomping, contemporary Christian music only will not do. See, here's the thing. We're worshiping God. Our tastes are set aside. No single form of worship and song will do. However, what will do is that whatever form of song that is enjoyed, the content of the song is Christ-centered. The song is consistent with the words of Christ so that we're not singing about ourselves. All our singing must have doctrinal substance. That's what Paul's saying. There is a biblical foundation to your singing church. And that's a far cry from, you know, I really like the beat. I really like the speed. I really like the style of the song. We may like them, but that is not the concern that should be pressing us here. Genuine Christian praise is a celebration of God's mighty acts to God. It is theology set to all different kinds of form and all different styles of music. And so then because of the variety, when it comes to style, we can't say that's the only way. No, but what we can say is what we try to say around here. Is the song biblical? Is it about Christ, expressing Christ? Is it theological? Is it singable so that even a child may sing Christ's praise with us? And is it a pattern that fits us all? So as we continually set ourselves aside for Christ and for one another, is this a pattern that fits us all? It's a dangerous thing to come into a worship service with a scorecard, don't you think? I like that, but I didn't like that, but I didn't like that. You know what my mother would tell me? 
she would say, who do you think you are? And if she was having a bad day, to me, she would say, get behind me, Satan. Who should sing? In public worship, everyone. What do we sing? We sing theology in many different musical forms with a whole host of musical expressions. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And, and unless we have this fixed standard, the word of Christ, that's the standard. Our worship will be unstable. Our worship will be disobedient. And our worship, frankly, will be wrong. It'll be wrong. Question three then, how should we sing? Well, at the very end of verse 16, we're told, with gratitude and our hearts to God. The, the word gratitude is the word that we can translate grace. It makes sense, right? How should we sing? Well, if we're singing theology, then we're singing about the gospel. We're singing about the wonders of God and the goodness of God and the wonders of Christ and the greatness of Christ and the greatness of the cross. We sing then with grace in our hearts, with the grace of thankfulness then directed to God. So, so I sing to God when we come here. And all my songs are to God. And he is my audience, if you would. And every song is dedicated to him. I asked the first service, do, do people still do dedications over the radio? You know, when you call in, I want to dedicate this song to Mrs. X for, because she's so terrific or whatever. People still do that? And you're looking at me like, no, they don't. Well, you, well they should start. Okay, how's that? Every song dedicated to God. Remember that, what was that tune? This is dedicated to the one I love. So in worship, we are never the issue, are we? Not primarily. Not primarily. And if we think ultimately that, that we are the issue, then we have worship upside down. And worship upside down is what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. Point of fact, if you think about it, the very word worship if you understood the word, it makes this very clear. Worship, it, what the word worship means is to bring the person out of themselves and into or focusing on, if you would, the worship of God, right? So we get out of ourselves and we focus, if you would, on the worship of God. The word worship, by the way, is an Anglo-Saxon word, excuse me, that comes from the word worship. Namely, the worth of the one being approached. So if we could use in our vernacular, is he worth it? Is a question we would go to in worship. So when we say we will come and worship God, in this case, in song, what we're saying is that when we sing the way God would want us to sing, we're saying that God has the chief place in our thoughts and God has the chief place in our interest. Let me say that again. God has the chief place in our thoughts and God has the chief place in our interest. He is worth it. So then let's take a couple of steps back as we think about Sunday morning worship. And it, and it becomes time for us to gather as the people of God for public worship. We've been given this opportunity then to give Jesus the chief place in our thoughts and to give Jesus the chief place in our affections as opposed to let's see if I can fit it in. Or let's look at everything else that's going on and if all things being equal we can find a way to fit it in then okay maybe we will fit it in. But loved ones, all things are not equal, are they? The worship of Christ is the, is the context of how we gather. And the worship of Jesus Christ, pay attention here, is the highest form of human activity. The worship of Jesus Christ is the highest form of human activity. Fit it in? Fit it in? Is that the mark of a grateful heart? Or... Is that the mark of a mindful, ungracious 
unthankful heart. You're sensible people. You can think that through. Loved ones, it is so easy, especially in our Disneyland times. It is so easy to be deceived by the temporary benefits of having an entire Sunday all to yourself. However, for loving reasons, God in his glory is the priority. And man and his need come only after the considerations of God himself. And this makes sense since, since God has made us, since God has sustained us, since God has taken the initiative in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to break into this world and save it. To me, that makes all the sense in the world. All that we have, all that we will have, and all that will be given on that glad and happy day will not be because we earned it, but it will be because He gave it. That's why when you think about Jesus and when he had that little conversation with the woman at the well and she has her questions and Jesus has uh, the answers and her question is about the location of worship in John 4, he tells her, you don't have to worry until that day dawns because the day is coming when those who worship God, who worship Christ, will worship him in spirit and in truth. And then he says, for these are the worshipers that the Father seeks. Think about that. For these are the worshipers that the Father seeks. So God the Father actually takes the initiative and looks down on Atasca County on a morning like this and is seeking it out, us out. And he says, will you worship me this morning? Will you make me the chief object of your thoughts and your interest amongst all the other things that you could do? May I be the one thing that you will do? Will you gather together with other people and declare my worth? Am I not worth it? And that is what Paul is saying here essentially. And that's what he's saying in Colossians 3. The people of God have the peace of Christ ruling and they have the, the words of Christ dwelling when that happens, and the natural byproduct of that is we'll have songs in our heart that we should be singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we should be singing. So I want you to think about the context of worship. When you come and set yourself in this place, I want you to think of it this way. First of all, it involves your emotions. It involves your emotions so that we may be stirred we may be corrected, we may be humbled, we may be constrained, and we may be inspired. Now, we're not all put together the same way emotionally. We understand that, but nevertheless, it is there. And at the same time, there's an intellectual level to the public worship of Jesus Christ in song. We have to think about what we are singing. Is this true? Is this Christ-centered? Do I believe it? And so if you just have emotion alone, that will not do. And if you just have intellectual, intellectual kind of assent to the thing, that will not do. But when you take the combination together, and then when you actually recall the grace of God and His goodness in your mind, and then it may kind of stir the right emotions in your heart, then there's something that can be happening. Because if you think about this, that is very different from saying, uh, you know, my emotion was stirred because I like the melody. Or my emotions were stirred because I like the speed or the beat or the sound of the song or whatever else it is. That may or may not be the case, but loved ones, that doesn't really matter. What really matters is this, is what we're saying to, singing together sensible and big, biblical and discovering a pattern that is fitting us, fitting us all. So when we worship God, it's emotional, yes. When we worship God, it's, it's intellectual, yes, but it's also volitional, 
right? Isn't it volitional? Is this going to be worth it? So you have to decide. Whatever time you get up on a Sunday morning, you have to decide if you'll come. Is it worth it? Is he worth it? If you come then, you have to decide, am I going to participate? Or am I just going to sit there? And then when you're sitting there, you have to decide, am I going to concentrate? Is, is, is he worth it? He, Christ, worth it? So I will concentrate and listen to his word preached. And then after you consider everything that was sung and said and prayed, as you go out into the world, you're going to have to say, am I going to take this? Am I really going to take this with me and go abroad in, in the places where Christ has put me? So we approach this setting emotionally, intellectually, and volitionally. And so the byproduct of that, specifically in song, should be gratitude to God. Gratitude. Okay, who should sing? Everyone. Well, what do we sing? Well, we sing theology in many different musical forms, many different range of musical expressions, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. How should we sing? We should sing with grace in our heart, with thankfulness of our heart as we think things through. And so verse 17 kind of sums up everything. Our everything we do falls under the person and the words of Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 17. Whatever you do, everything, singing, teaching, living, is all governed, is all restrained by, in step with Jesus. Do everything in word or deed in the name of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Peace of Christ. Words of Christ. Songs about Christ. A life that's lived in Christ. Which means the whole fabric of our life is to stand into Jesus' name. Let everything that we do be in dependence on the help of Jesus. Everything we do filtered through the words of Jesus. To do life in Jesus' name means that we quite simply let the power and the personality and the principles of Jesus Christ govern us in all things. In all things. This is, this is Calvin. Our life is to be regulated so much so that whatever we say or whatever we do may be wholly governed by the authority of Christ from His Word and serving His glory. And when that is done, the, the invocation, when we say, in Jesus' name, then blessing will follow. If we try to put ourselves first and then say in Jesus' name, who knows what will follow? But when we invoke the name of Jesus, what we're saying is we're constrained by the words and principles and instructions of Jesus. And then we will know whatever happens, life or death, blessing, blessing will follow. And so then Thanksgiving becomes the norm. It is some of the saddest thing in, thing in the world that so much of evangelical Christianity lives with un, an ungrateful heart. An ungrateful heart. A long time ago, when I was a much younger man, we used to sing this song in church that had this refrain. For all that you've done, I will thank you. For all that you're going to do. For all that you've promised and all that you are, is all that has carried me through. Amen to that. Jesus, I thank you. And then the refrain, and I thank you, thank you, Lord.
Then the people would come and say, and we thank you, and we thank you, Lord. It was a great moment. It was a great moment. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and pray.